I want you all to realize that every one of you plays a role uh, when it comes to the local church. I want you to realize that everything that you do, there's an ongoing effect of this that you are either negatively impacting the church or positively. Negative or positive. And sometimes you, you can think, is, well, if I'm not doing anything, then I'm, not, I'm neutral. Well, there is no neutral. You're either positively impacting the church, the local church, the universal church, or you're negatively impacting. What I mean by that is uh, because of your actions, right, the actions, the things that you do, the things that you say, uh, they make an impact on you. They make an impact on the others that are around you. Case in point, if you were to, you know, have a, a, a conflict with your wife and then that next day you yell and you scream and you, you show anger and all of this and then the next day you say, hey, let's go to church. What do you think she's going to think about church because of your display, because you're calling yourself a Christian but yet your actions show different? It's going to affect the way that she goes to church. It's going to affect the way that she worships. It's going to affect the way that she relates and fellowships with other people. All right, well, just think about your faith. Right, if we're online and we're believing all these things that we, we hear online or all these feelings that we have inside about God, and we start to share those things with our, our neighbor or coworker, how do you think that's going to affect them? when it's more of a feelings-based or, or, or it comes off as so legalistic and there's no grace there, how do you think that's going to affect them? We all, we, all, we all have a responsibility. We all play a part in the health of our local church. Because somebody's going to look at you, and, and oftentimes for a non-Christian, you're the only Bible that they will get a chance to, to read or understand based on your words and based on your actions. And if your faith is not rooted in Scripture, if you're not preaching truth to them, then it's no different than what they're saying, what they're feeling. Some of you may be thinking right now, well, I just won't do anything. Well, then that makes a negative impact to the church as well. Because God has given you a gift, specifically you, with a specific purpose to build up his church as a Christian. And so if you're saying, well, I'll just kind of sit back and you know what, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not doing anything wrong, I'm not doing anything right, I'm just neutral. You're negatively impacting the church because God has designed you to be used to build the body of Christ, and you're not doing that. And so there's a lot of things that if you look at it, um, you and I, we can negatively or positively impact the church. And I want you to feel that. I want you to walk away knowing that, yeah, the actions that I do, the things that I say, outside of this room, right? Because we all will come here and we'll say the right things. I get that. But I'm talking about what happens in your home and how weighty it is with every word that you say, with how you talk about your faith, that you play a role in the health of the church. Well, Paul provides us in our passage three key fundamentals that we need to know. We need to know and we need to understand about our actions and how they reflect how the health of, of the church, of this church. And I want you to, to understand it. I want you to have that, that weight in everything that you do. 
So let's find out and learn from these three key fundamentals that Paul points us to in Ephesians 4. We can go ahead and turn there, Ephesians 4, and see if you and I can read these and understand these and have these impact our lives uh, as we leave here today. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 10. And of course, we get to Ephesians 4, again, as I alluded to last week, we go from Christian doctrine to what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1 through 3, to now we're getting to Christian duty. Here's, here's what it means to live all those uh, doctrinal things uh, that we talked about in chapters 1 through 3. Here's how to live it out. Right? And so Paul gives more of uh, uh, imperatives or commands, if you will, in the back half of the book, in most of his letters, than he, more than he does in the front half of the book. So in the front half of the book, if we look at chapters 1 through 3, he gave us one imperative, one imperative. And that came in chapter 2, verse 11, when he said, therefore, remember, right? He was saying, remember what, what I just said in regards to how you are saved. You're saved by grace. Remember that, and then that, that, was, that was a one imperative. Well, if we look at chapters 4 through 6, there are 40, 40. So we go from one to now he's got 40 commands, 40 imperatives that he's given us on how to live out the Christian life and how to make sure that is part of our walk. And so... Let's go ahead and read Ephesians 4, verse 1. It says this, I, therefore, right, therefore, he's pointing back to everything he just said in chapters 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's reminding them again where he is, a prisoner for the Lord. He urges them. There's that exhortation, right? He, he's imploring them. Almost sounds like uh, Romans 12 where he says, I appeal, therefore, brothers, right? I appeal to you. I'm begging you. Listen, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, not start something new, right? Maintain it. God has designed this. God has built this. He wants you to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's quoting uh, Psalm 68 right there. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So as we go back up to the top of our passage and we look at that verse 1, right, he says walk, walk. He cares about our walk. I urge you to walk in a manner, walk in a manner. And he uses that word, and obviously he's not talking about your literal walk. He's using it as a metaphor and talking about your walk, right, your lifestyle, your conduct. That's what he's talking about. Your lifestyle, your conduct should be in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy, worthy. There's another word right there, axios in the Greek. It, 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 that word is, 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 is using like a weight, right? He wants, if you had a scale, just picture a scale right here. He wants your doctrine to be even with your conduct, right? Your doctrine can't be all up here and then your life is all down here. 
right? He's saying you need to be worthy of your calling. Your calling is from the Lord, and your calling is that he has saved you, and he is going to use you for his glory. And your conduct, your lifestyle, your walk needs to match up with your doctrine, right? It needs to be equal weight, equal weight, like value. And he says you have worthy of the calling to which you have been called, called. There's a theological term, an effectual calling, effectual calling. The fact that God has called you. He has chosen you before the foundations of the earth. He has chosen you for his good purposes. He has chosen you for his plan of salvation so that he may get the glory through your life. He has called you to a purpose. He has called you to a mission that he has, right, that effectual calling. That is the call. Our lives, we have been called from darkness to light, right, from enemies of God to part of God's family to be used for his glory. That's, that's our calling. That's our calling. Why? Why has he done that? Two, verse three, he's to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Maintain the unity of the spirit, right, to have peace. That's why he's called us to this. I jumped over verse 2, but verse 2, of course, is going to be the meat of point one for us. And we need to understand that there's these four virtues. Look at verse 2. Humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These four virtues that are essential to the Christian walk. And if you think about those four right there, if you think about those, right, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, right, enduring with one another, right, tolerating, putting up with one another. Who would you say did that better than anybody else? Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? Jesus. Jesus Christ did that perfectly, right? He was humble. He was gentle. He was patient. He bared with one another in love. Recently, um, we had just moved a few months back, and uh, when you're boxing up stuff and you're packing up, you find random things. It's like, well, where did this come from? Like, I didn't even know I had this. Uh, I found my seventh grade report card. What? Seventh grade report card from my second semester. And in my mind, I'm like, was I hiding this from my parents? And I've hid it, you know, 20, 30 years later. Like, do I still have this? Do I, do I, do I need to show it to them? Like, what, does it matter now? I don't know. But I, ha- I had this. And, of course, I'm looking at it like, I wonder what young Kellen was up to in seventh grade. Uh, and the grades were decent, right? They, they, were, they were all right. And I go to the conduct line, and I see satisfactory, satisfactory, satisfactory. And then in English, I see non-satisfactory. Like, what was wrong with that teacher? Because <laughs> thought I was probably doing okay in class. Um, non-satisfactory. But it made me think about just... The fact that in this teacher's class, whomever she was, obviously I forgot about her so because she marked me as a non-satisfactory. She didn't uh, make the Hall of Fame of my teachers. But whoever she was, she had a, a, an expectation in her class. She had, a, she had this, this, this expectation for everybody that she was grading them uh, on. And the expectation was if you did what you were supposed to do, if you were timely, if you didn't talk so much in class, if you weren't uh, a disruptor in class, if you were somebody that helped the class uh, move along a lot better than somebody that detracted, that distracted, that pulled, you know, tension away from the teacher, you, you know, you were probably a non-satisfactory student. But she had this expectation of if you did what you needed to do, then it was satisfactory what your conduct was. What well, made me think about God and thinking about his level, which is far more important, and 
if we were getting graded on our conduct, where would we line up? Would we be somebody that's helping move the class along, if you will, if you're helping move the mission along, the goal along for the class, or would you be somebody that's more of an anchor, that's holding other people back, that's holding the local church back because you're not doing what you're expected to do? How is your conduct? Is the class more productive because of you, or is it not? As a Christian, we need to always make sure that our conduct is at the expectation level. And the expectation level is Christ, right? It's Jesus. He's the expectation. He, he, he's the perfect one that we should all strive to be like. It's not, hey, I want to be like uh, somebody else because, again, we are to imitate others as they imitate Christ. Like Christ is the standard. And so for us as Christians, our conduct needs to be held at the standard of Christ. And we need to evaluate ourselves at all times to make sure our conduct is Christ-like because it has an impact if it's not. Let's write that down that way for point number one. Ensure your conduct is Christ-like. Ensure your conduct is Christ-like. Again, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We can't just talk about those things. We can't just talk about them and know what they are and familiar with them because the Bible tells us we should. And then our life reflects something completely different. It's not how it works. I just wonder if somebody was characterizing your life. Again, you got no commentary in this. They just said, you know what, if I look at those four virtues of a Christian, how would they grade you? How would they grade you? Would you be somebody that they would say, yeah, shows a lot of humility. All right, he's humble. Yeah, he might be a smart guy. He might know his Bible. He might know a lot of stuff about what we do at work, but he's very humble. Well, they say you're a gentle person. Right? Even when, when somebody slips up or in, you're gentle about your reproach or your rebuke to them or your approach, excuse me, not reproach, your approach to them. Well, they say you're, you're, you're patient. You're long-suffering. When people make mistakes, you're, you're patient. You understand that you make mistakes just like they make mistakes, so you're patient with them. What they say, you're, you, you bear with one another in love. How would they grade you? Something we need to ensure that's happening in our life. But we need to get a better look at these because I don't want any of us to leave here thinking uh, our own terms when it comes to gentleness and humility and, and bearing with one another in love. We can get it right from Scripture. <coughs> Jot down this verse, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul talks about humility here. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, right, all tuned together, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's the humility. It's putting others before yourself. Matter of fact, I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, not putting yourself down, but think, just think of yourself less and put others in front of you more often. That's humility. That's humility. Not thinking, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a conflict, and how am I going to win this? Oh, why do I have to get the short end of the stick? It's, I'm going to put others before me. 
because that's what Christ wants me to do. It's not about winning an argument. It's about Christ winning the argument, which means taking the humble approach every time, every time. Just wonder how often are you putting others before yourself? When you think about the church, there's plenty of needs in the church that go around. There's plenty of needs. I mean, you can add probably needs within your own small group right now. How often are you putting others before yourself to say, I know it's inconvenient for my schedule. I know it might stretch me uh, for a while. I don't know how long this need is going to last. So I, but how much are you putting somebody else before yourself to say, you know what, there's a need, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I'm going to put somebody else before my own plans, my own schedule, without looking for something in return. How often are you putting others before yourself? What about gentleness? Write this verse down, Titus 3, 1 and 2. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Paul again says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Jesus also said this in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I just wonder for you men, how gentle are you in your marriage? How gentle are you to your wife in your marriage? Because that's a big one for us, right? When was the last time instead of blowing up in anger or instead of giving them the silent treatment, because we think that that's better, giving them the silent treatment, and it's not, by the way, I don't want to leave that hanging. It's not. Um, how often do you step back and just say, you know what, I need to be more gentle. I need to pray with my wife. I need to change my approach because this conduct is going to affect my marriage. It's going to affect the health of the church. It's going to affect how my wife thinks about me when I go to church and I act totally different because other people are around. I just wonder how gentle we are to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy. None of that says to get your own way. None of that says to win the debate. None of that says to, to use what God has designed us as the, the, the stronger vessel, if you will, in 1 Peter 3, to try to dominate the weaker vessel. It's not going to go well for you if you try to take advantage of that. It's not going to go well for you. How gentle are you in your marriage? Patience. Write this verse down, Romans 12, 12. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I just wonder for you, in a trial, how's your patience level? When you're in a trial, when something's not going your way, when you're in a season of life that you don't want to be in, how is your patience level? Are you, are, you, are, you, are you praying, as Paul tells us to do? Are you praying through that, or are you constantly trying to hit the eject button saying, get me out of here. I don't want to be at this job. I don't like this situation. My marriage is hard. I, I want out. I want out. Are you patient to say, what is God doing in my life right now? What is he trying to show me in this tough season that I don't want to be in? What is he trying to show me about myself? 
What is he trying to teach me right now? Are we patient in tribulation by being constant in prayer? Love the verse in Haggai 1, 5, 7. It says, or 1, 5 and verse 7. He says, consider your ways, right? We talked about that in main service. Consider your ways a couple weeks ago. Consider your ways. Have you considered your ways? Right? Have you thought about your situation? Have you thought about why I'm here as opposed to always looking for the first route out? Last one, bearing with one another in love. Right? Tolerating is another word for bearing. Enduring, putting up with. Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13. Paul says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Any of you have kids in here or, or somebody that's close to you, uh, how is your response when they fail you? How's your response when somebody fails you? Do you bear with them in love? Do you endure through that? Do you put up with it? Or do you snap at them or shame them or make the other person feel bad? as if you never sinned, right? Do we bear with one another in love? Because here's the thing that you and I need to realize more often is we fail Christ every day, far more than the person that's in front of you is failing you. So if you're not able to look and say, man, I failed Christ so many times, but guess what? He promises to forgive if I confess my sins. He's faithful to forgive, First John. He's faithful to forgive us. But then we don't want to forgive the person that's right in front of us, that's failed us. Right? How are we bearing with one another in love? Those four things, here's what I didn't emphasize, and I did it intentionally. I'm not talking about here. In this room, at this church, around other people that are going to hold you accountable. Because for most of you, you're not going to do it here. It's not going to show up here. You're going to be patient. You're going to be gentle. You're going you're to bear with one another in love. You're going to do all that stuff here. I'm talking about when you hit these doors. I'm talking about when you go home. I'm talking about when eyes aren't on you. Because as I prayed at the outset, God's eyes are always on you. And the way that you act outside of these doors, you're true conduct, the way that you act there, that's what I'm talking about has a negative or positive effect on the local church because of your conduct. It can either positively affect it and people can say, man, I want to be around church more. I want to be more like Christ because of you and what they see in you. Or it could negatively affect them and have them come to church if they come with a bad attitude because your conduct was not where it needed to be. Just saying all of us need to, to, to grab hold of that and know that we have a responsibility. We have a part to play when it comes to sustaining the health of a church. You can't just point and say, well, overall, the church is doing a good job. So, you know, my, my little anger blow up over here really doesn't. It does matter because it affects the person you're talking to, which then affects the persons that they're talking to, and it continues to trickle out. You may not see it, but it matters. It matters a lot. 
Paul's point in this, is not saying, hey, when you guys get around other holy people, then you act right. No, he's saying your whole entire life, your walk, your lifestyle needs to be with conduct that is Christ-like. It needs to be that way. If you're looking at those four, just those four, right? We didn't even go that far. But if you're looking at those four right there, if you're honest with yourself, you, like I, would say guilty. Yeah, guilty. Yep, guilty. Oh, that fourth one too? Yep, guilty. Maybe if you're honest with yourself. Some of you are saying, no, nah, nah, I'm, do- I'm doing all right in those. You got other problems you got to worry about, right? I'm saying if you're honest with yourself, you'll say, yeah, I fall short. But here's how God's grace and mercy expresses itself. And this is why grace is such a beautiful thing and we should be so grateful for it. Because, as I've already mentioned, 1 John 1, 9 says, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, if we confess, if we confess that we fall short, we understand that, that he's faithful to forgive us. He's faithful to forgive us. So we have that forgiveness, not that we're going to continue to sin, because Romans 6 tells us that, by no means. We're not going to continue to sin so that grace may abound. We're not going to do that. But we understand that we have a loving and caring God that allows us to be able to come to him and confess our sins, and he's faithful to forgive us. So here's what I'm saying is you and I need to constantly check our conduct. And not just think about it, but but examine our own lives. And if it doesn't line up with Christ and what he expects in gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with one another and and many of the other commandments, then we need to repent. Some of you are are, are in an argument with your spouse right now, right now, right? You're you're on non-talking terms right now. That's harmful to the health of the church. You are hurting the local church right now because it's impacting your wife. You've got kids at home. It's probably impacting them. It's probably impacting your friends because you're just, you're, you're dumping on them, trying to get them to justify what you're doing. It's impacting a lot of people. And I'm saying you and I need to look at that, examine our own life, and have enough responsibility and understanding to say, I need to repent right now. If I haven't talked to my wife in three days, I need to go talk to her right now and ask her for forgiveness. And repent and get back on track to Christ-like conduct that we all need to have as part of our lifestyle. Not just in here, not just at the church when you're here. Outside is what I'm talking about. Outside is what Paul is talking about. More importantly, God's word is telling us our lifestyle, our conduct. That's where it matters. Back to our passage, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul says about unity, there is one body, one spirit, right? one body, right? There are no longer Jews and Greeks, uh, Jews and Gentiles. They, there's one body. They're one in Christ, that one spirit. There's one spirit that we are, are, are baptized in, one spirit, all the same spirit, God indwelled within us, right? Just as you were called to the one hope, the one hope. The hope that, 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 that God gives us through the work of Jesus Christ, because of Christ's perfect life, we can have a hope that whatever happens in this world, this is not our permanent home. We can have that hope, that one hope that belongs to your call. 
one Lord. That's a big statement right there. That's a big statement if you think about the context of this letter, right? The one Lord that everybody focused on was Artemis. Artemis. Artemis is the one Lord. The one Lord. And so Paul is telling them, I don't care about Artemis. One Lord is Jesus Christ. That's the one Lord. And that's the Lord that you go out and proclaim. That's the Lord that you go out and you obey. That's the one Lord. It's even a big statement for us today in this day and age. Because people read that passage, one Lord. Whoa, well, that doesn't mean Jesus wants us to do everything he says. Like He just says we need to believe in him and then we can have everlasting life. No. There's a lordship salvation of, yes, if we believe in Jesus, if we love Jesus, if we realize that he died on the cross, that he shed his blood for our sins, then my love for him is whatever you want. Whatever you want, I'm going to do. Not, I get you did that, but I'm still going to live my life. But can I have your benefits when it's time for us to meet later on? Doesn't work that way. It's called easy believism. Not good. Horrible doctrine. One Lord, one faith. One faith. There was a belief and thought back then, if you look at during this time, that there was a multitude of Christianity. There was a multitude of, uh, of versions of Christianity. It's not true. There's one faith. One faith through the gospel. That was the faith. Paul tells us that right there. One faith. One baptism. I think here he's, he's referring to baptism of the Spirit, right? We are baptized into the Spirit, right? Baptized there. I mean, he could, I mean, of course, that could apply water baptism, but I think for the context of our passage, he's talking about being baptized by the Spirit, in the Spirit, as one. We are all part of the Spirit now in Christ. One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Another big statement. Again, this is a melting pot in Ephesus of religions. Over 50 religions there. And Paul is telling them, none of those other religions matter. Those little G gods, they don't matter. Here is the one God. The God that you serve, that's the one true God. There's one God. So for them to, to go back and proclaim this, these foundational truths right here, these, these creeds almost, if you will, for them to go back and profess these, they, they were going to have some conflict. They were going to run into some attacks. But Paul urges them to be rooted in these beliefs, these truths, not have doubt but maintain peace and unity through these statements that he's referring to, these, these ones. If we want to maintain a, a healthy church today, that means that not going online and uh, hearing what everybody else has to say and then taking that as your faith. It means that not basing your faith on your feelings. Well, this is what I feel like is happening right now, or this is what, what I think, or this is what I think God wants for me. You don't have to think, you don't have to feel because you have the truth right in front of you. We just need to be in God's word. He tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. He, tell, he gives us everything that we need there. We need to be rooted in there. And we can't drift into our own opinions and feelings that, and, and, and beliefs that are not rooted in Scripture. That's number two for us this morning. Write it down this way. Keep your beliefs rooted in Scripture. Keep your beliefs rooted in Scripture. Because here's the thing. It's far too easy to lean on what sounds right, um, what feels right. You know, it is what God wants from my life. Or, you know, this person said this. It sounded pretty eloquent. And, you know, that's what I'm going to go with even if they are standing in a pulpit. 
we need to be rooted in God's word. We all need to be studying God's word, and our faith needs to be rooted there because he gives us what we need in his word. We don't have to guess because when we start basing on feelings or traditions or this is how it's always been done or all that stuff, guess who else we're, we're playing with then? Satan. Because he can deceive you into thinking that what you're believing, what you're doing is really what God wants. He's a master at that. And that's exactly what he, what he wants you to do. The more you can, he can get your eyes off of this and just thinking here, you're playing in his sandbox. That's what he wants from you. But the more we stay rooted in this, just like Jesus quoted scripture back at Satan, the more we can do that, then the more firmly rooted we will be in our faith. And the, and the better it will be for the health of the church, for the people that you talk to, because you're preaching God's word, not your feelings, not your experiences in life. Keep your, root, keep your beliefs rooted in scripture. I love this passage. This verse is just so strong and powerful. Hebrews 2.1. Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. The more and more you don't pay attention to what you've heard or what you have in Scripture, you will drift away. You, you, you will. You will drift away. It's not about, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I kind of know that you will drift away. Unless you are rooted in God's word and your beliefs are rooted in God's word. If they're not, it's the same situation happening all over again. You go all the way back to the garden. God gave specific commands. Specific commands. You can eat of any tree. It's not this tree. You got one tree. You can't eat from this tree. Again, you get further and further away from what God said and what God has said to us. Then guess who else steps in? Satan to say, did God really say He's going to ask you that same question. Did God really say it that way? I don't know. I hadn't read my Bible in about a week, so I'm kind of thinking that maybe he does want the best for me. Did God really say? He just didn't want you to have this delight, right? But you know he loves you. You know he wants you to have whatever you want to have, right? So you should do it. You should say that thing. You should have that outburst because they deserve it. They wronged you. You don't have to be gentle this time. You don't have to forgive this time because, you, you know, you, you, they, they really need to ask for forgiveness from you. You don't need to ask for forgiveness. You, did God really say you should be gentle? Did God really say that it is one God? It's one faith? Come on, there's so many people out here. You tell me that one God, so all these people are going to go to hell? Did God really say that? Absolutely he did. Because we can go right to God's word and see. This is what he said. Do we need to have a strategy meeting and understand God? No. Because we wouldn't understand it even if we tried. His motive and his understanding. He calls us to be obedient to his word and he's given us his word. Stay in his word and we stay away from the debate with Satan of did God really say? Because guess what? He will make you and convince you and deceive you to think, I, I am right here. If you're not rooted in Scripture, stay in his word. Refresh yourself on his word, on his truths. 
we're going to have opposition just like the, the Ephesians were going to have opposition. They were going to be spiritually attacked going back with these beliefs. One God, one faith, all, one Lord. They were going to be attacked. You're going to be attacked too. It's going to happen. Be ready for it. But be ready and rooted in God's word, armored up in God's word. That's going to allow us to not waver when somebody comes to you or somebody pushes you on your faith and your belief. You're not going to waver. You're not going to be tossed to and fro with every wind and doctrine. You stay rooted in Scripture. Last section, Paul preaches on unity all throughout. He's talking about unity. Here's what unity doesn't mean. It doesn't mean uniformity. These are two different things. Unity means we are of the same mind. We have the same goal. We have the same purpose. We're on the same team, if you will. We're on the same team. But just like a team, every player does not play the same position. You don't have 11 quarterbacks on the field. It would be a travesty, right? Most of those guys aren't even athletic. So, well, some of them are. Not all of them. 11 punters. Most punters aren't. Somebody was probably a punter growing up. I'm sorry. You get my point. Everybody's not playing the same position. Everybody has their own role. And this is what Paul wants us to understand about the Christian life. He wants us to understand about the church that everyone has a role to play and a role that they've been given. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he was the one that measured out and gave us these gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That is a mouthful, um, verse 8 through 10. Let me help, help us understand that a little bit better. Starting in verse 8, we'll get back to 7. Verse 8 is, he, he's quoting this victory psalm, Psalm 68, 18, which says, You ascended on high, almost same word, word for word. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving, there's a, big, there's a difference there, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So he says in Psalms that he's receiving, God is receiving these, these gifts from men. And then in our passage, it says Christ is giving these gifts, right? He's, he's the giver. And so how to completely understand that doesn't give us that. But what we can possibly understand is, look, God has, has, has defeated uh, the, 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 the opposition as far as the sin that's there, the, the, the demons and all of those things. God, ha God has defeated that. And now he's given Christ gifts to give to his church to continue to live out that plan, right? God receives the gifts. Christ gives them. Uh, in verse 8. And then there's another confusing part, of course, in verse 9 and 10. There's a lot of debate about this because it talks about this descending. Where, where, where did he descend? Where did he descend? Well, there's one view, of course. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, then this is where it comes from because uh, the Apostles' Creed tells us he descended into hell. Uh, this was uh, years later after uh, first century. Uh, but he descended into hell. And so there's this thought that between when Christ was dead, those three days, that he descended into hell and he uh, preached the gospel and he shared the victory that he had to all of those fallen realm, right, the dead. And so he, he, he brought people out of, out, out, of, out of there during those three days. 
I don't quite see that being the case here, but you, would, you could go to 2 Peter 2.4 and 1 Peter 3.18, and they're all referring to him going to Hades, him going down to Hades. I look at this passage, and a passage like Luke 23, 39 through 43, which of course is the thief on the cross when Jesus tells the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Not like, hey, I'm going to catch you on the way back. I got some business to take care of. I'll meet up with you and then take you to paradise. He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And so it's hard for me to wrap my, my, my mind around, and you know, these are the early church fathers that are saying this, but it's hard to wrap your mind around he went down to Hades for three days when Jesus told the man on the cross that today, today, not in the future, we're gonna, you'll be with me in paradise. Or passages like absent from the body means present with the Lord. There's no, there's no gap there. So I think if you look at this passage right here, um, when we look at descending, it's God, Christ descending down from heaven, descending down to earth. And then that's where the descension is. And then he ascends back up to heaven. And so I, I think that is, you know, helpful to understand for those two or three verses uh, that he's quoting Psalm 68 and he's talking about he descended, one, because he was up in heaven, descended down, right? He emptied himself to descend down to heaven and, or earth and then back up, uh, not lower than that. But that's, you're going to read, depending on your commentary, you're going to read that he descended in the, to, to, the, to Hades and to hell. Um, I, I don't see that, but it doesn't really change the perspective of this verse uh, because the point is uh, he, he's proclaiming victory over the, the evil one, the, 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 the dead, the, the spiritual realm, the dead, the, the demons. He's proclaiming victory over that. And so all of that to say he, he's proclaiming victory starting in, in Psalm 68, right? He, he's won that, and then now he's giving gifts to the church. And so he's put a, put a uh, basically a blocker on the, the opponents of the church, the opponents of his plan for us to live out these gifts that we have, right? He's given us gifts to go out and continue to build the church um, and to be used and to maintain the unity and continue to build up the church. So let's write down point number three this way, and I'll explain it a little bit more. Uh, we need to understand, based on verse 7, that Christ gave you a spiritual gift to use. Christ gave you a spiritual gift to use. Every individual in this room that is a Christian, you have been given a gift designed for you to use to build up the body of Christ. Romans 12, 4, 6 says, for as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same body or have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then, of course, in that passage, he continues to talk specifically about how those gifts are being used, which Pastor Roy will talk to you more about next week. Uh, But here's what this doesn't imply, that there's a Christian out there with no spiritual gifts. It doesn't imply that every Christian has a spiritual gift. What that is for you, that's what you need to examine and find out and do and apply Uh, But every Christian has a spiritual gift. And here's what else it doesn't imply. Certainly doesn't imply that it's optional. That, yeah, you have a spiritual gift, that you understand that, but eh, I don't know if I want to use it in this season because life is busy or my finances are a little tight, so I need to spend a little bit more time at work. That's not an option. That's not an option. You have been given a gift specifically by Christ 
to build his church, to continue the health of the church, to grow the church, you are to use that. Use that. Every one of you that's a Christian should be using your gifts. Uh, Bill Belichick, currently unemployed. I wish he was a Cowboys coach, um, but he's not. Um, but maybe. Six Super Bowls. He's won more Super Bowls than any other coach in NFL history. Um, he used to mandate his team captains to sign a document that he created. And the name of the document was, do your job. <laughs> do your job statement was what it was called. And all of his captains had to sign the do your job statement to recognize for them to know you have a responsibility on this team. Whether you're on special teams or offense or defense, you have a responsibility. And this is a commitment that you are going to do your job. And then if you do your job, then everybody else on the team is going to do their job. And that's what he used to really press into his team is just do your job. If you're a receiver, don't try to tell the quarterback what he needs to do or the running back. what. Just do your job and be the best at your job. Every Christian here, every Christian on this earth has been given a gift. He's been given a gift. And sometimes we need to think about that's a statement just like that and say, am I doing my job? Right, I know there's, this person's doing this, and man, I think I'd be good at that, am I, but am I doing my job to the best of my ability? Because if you are, then, then that's a great, that's a great uh, impact to the team. That's a great impact to the church. Are you doing your job? Are you doing your job? If I were to ask you, what is your, what is your God-given gift that Christ has given you to build his church, do you have an answer for that? Do you know what that is? And I know just by being in this room, I know some of you don't know what that is or you're just not doing it, which is even worse. But you may not know what that is. Here's the easiest way to find out what that is. If you're trying to figure that out right now, I want to give you the easiest way. Serve. Just start serving. There's plenty of needs in the church right now. Just start serving. And pray that God would give you clarity on where he wants to use you. But you got to put one foot in front of the other. Just start serving, and then somehow or another God places people in your life or God opens up opportunity, and you get to a certain spot where you're like, wow, I feel like I'm being useful right now. Well, that's because God led you there. God got you where he wanted you to, based on the gifts that you have. But it always starts with you need to start serving, not saying, oh, I'll just wait till somebody tells me or the perfect opportunity or actually I, I think I can do better than Pastor Kellen preaching. Well, you're, you're not right now. Maybe you can, but not right now. Start serving somewhere else. Start serving, and then God will open up that opportunity where he wants you. It doesn't matter what your dream serving post or you think it might be. It's where Christ has gifted you and where he's going to use you for his church. You affect the church. Your conduct affects the church. Your doctrine affects the church. How you serve affects the health of the church. You individually, we need to understand that and not sit back and wait or have conduct outside of the church and think it doesn't have an impact because it does. There's a tribe in Africa, they're called the pygmy tribe, and uh, basically pygmy means little people, like dwarfs, like small people. I'm not trying to pick on them, that's just what they're called. All right, it's a pygmy tribe. And so they're little people, uh, about yay high, and uh, there was a story about this one pygmy that was standing on top of a rhino. The rhino was dead, and he was standing on top of it, and the guy drives by and says, did you, did you kill that rhino? He said, yep, sure did. 
And, of course, the guy was curious and thinking, like, how? How'd you kill that rhino? And he said, with a club. And the guy, again, just baffled by it, goes, well, how big was this club? He goes, pretty big. It's about 100 of us. And the guy finally was like, oh, okay, well, that's different than what I was assuming. <laughs> right? And so you can take these little pygmies, and if you got a whole group of them, if you got 100 of them, and they're all aligned to the same mission, the same purpose, and they're all united, they can take down a big rhino. The same thing with the, the health of the church. If Christians are all aligned and all, all united and all on the same page in their conduct inside the church, outside the church, in their, their doctrine inside the church and outside the church, in their serving in the church, is it, all aligned and everybody's, everybody's on the same page and they're all doing their job to the best of their ability, then the gates of hell will never prevail. Again, God's universal church will, never, will not be thwarted. His plan will not be thwarted. It will continue to move forward. CBC can be affected by how you how your conduct, your doctrine, and if you choose to serve and utilize the gifts that God has given you or not. It can be affected. And you, every individual in here, needs to understand that weight that you have. And don't just think, well, I'm, I fit into a bigger it, You, you individually are responsible for the health of this church. And I want you and I to take that seriously. And I want you and I to make sure that our conduct, doctrine, and utilizing the gifts that Christ has given us we're doing it with excellence, and we're diligent about it, and we're examining ourselves to make sure that we know that what, what you do every single day, it affects the church, either negatively or positively. And I pray that there's more positives within our group of men that are helping to build the body of Christ here and continue to maintain the health in this church. Let's pray. God, this is a challenge. We know but the Christian life was not meant to be easy. Lord, I pray that we would be more diligent about our conduct. Such a big thing. So many of us uh, can think as soon as we leave these doors or when we're uh, just at home and, and eyes aren't on us that we can just say what we want to say or do what we want to think, and it, it, it doesn't make a big impact. But, Lord, I want us all to recognize that it does. It affects other people, which then trickles down and affects other people within the church, and it it. it, it, it Pulls, it brings an anchor to your plan and mission for our church. Lord, I pray that we would all be focused and, and, and just eager to do those things uh, that Christ has demonstrated and do them well and that we would stay rooted in your word. Lord, help us with that. We need that as we know that Satan is, is um, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And Lord, let us not give him an opportunity to do that because we are examining our own hearts. We are staying rooted in your word, and we are being used with the gifts that you have given us to build your church here. Help us to do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.